Friends in Christ, God's grace, mercy, and peace are yours today, tomorrow, as they were yesterday and the day before. So great is his faithfulness to you. I want to ask you a question this morning. What would compel you to leave your current career and start one in a completely different direction? What would compel you to quit your job and look elsewhere? Another question related to it, why in the world did so many people quit their jobs last year? Well, we know the reason some of them did, and that was because they were the tail end of the baby boom generation and had decided, well, I'm just gonna take early retirement. And so they said sayonara to the bosses and walked out the door, never to return. But there are still 47.4 million people who quit their job last year who weren't part of that group. Why did they quit? Well, some said they were afraid of getting COVID. Others said, I was forced to quit because I wouldn't get the vaccination. Others said, we made so much money with those government checks coming in during the lockdown that we really don't need to go back to work. And others said, you know what? I just got sick and tired of the same old, same old, and I'm looking for new opportunities. And so, with manufacturers and retailers raising the minimum wage, you'd think they hoped that that would be the magnet would draw people back into the job market. But last month's job statistics said that although our economy created 476,000 new jobs, unemployment went up a couple of ticks too. I don't know how much it's helped around here. I still go out north and see help wanted, join our team, now hiring signs all over the place. So we still have quite a people who, few people who just aren't ready to go back, go back to work. Which brings us to the final words of today's gospel lesson. They left, they pulled their boats up on the shore, they left everything and followed him. So what would compel a church worker to become one, to have a, someone become a church worker? What would compel that? Ever ask a church worker, why did you become a church worker and go into this work? What would compel a man who's making good wages to bring his family together and say, I've decided uh, I'm going to quit my job. Um, we're going to sell the house. I'm taking you kids out of school. And we're going to move to Fort Wayne or to St. Louis. I'm going to spend four years studying to be a pastor. And dear wife, you're going to have to work to put me through school. And I will work part time to help that along. And at the end of four, year, four years, I'll get a call to be a pastor somewhere probably earning a salary much less than what I was earning. And on top of that, we're going to have a mountain of debt that we're going to have to deal with. What would compel somebody to do such a thing like that? What would cause youngsters, teenagers who are interested in education to say, I want to be a parochial school teacher, not a public school teacher. And how many of their friends would say, what is that? when their friend said, I want to be a DCE or a deaconess. Well, both our Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading give us one reason this happens. 
Some are compelled to go into this because they have a, an incredible experience with God. It's one that leads them to say, I can do no other but go into this work. There's Isaiah in a vision standing before the Lord God himself in his throne room. And if he doesn't feel uncomfortable enough standing in the presence of the Lord God, you hear the seraphim singing, holy, 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 a word that means separate, apart, completely unlike anything else. And the point's driven home. You, Lord God, are like anyone else. I am standing as the, facing the Creator as the creation. No wonder, he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. It's like Peter, after the big catch of fish comes in, begins to dawn on him and he starts to put two and two together and says, Lord, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. We can't occupy the same boat. I am not like you. Well, in both cases, God works with their feeling of unworthiness and convinces them this is where he wants them to serve. This is what he wants them to do. So try as they might to make excuses. Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, to some extent Peter, and Paul, and countless others have discovered that God will have none of their excuses it's not going to work. And so they found themselves working in the Lord's service despite their initial misgivings. As an autobiographical note, while I was attending Princeton Seminary Grad School, I volunteered to preach at a nearby faltering mission congregation that was vacant. And as the year drew to a close and I prepared to leave the school and go elsewhere, <clears throat> the leaders of that church met with the district and the district had told them um, we're closing you down uh, things are not going well here and they said please give us another chance if, if you let us call Pastor Kripe and so they said okay if he wants to do that and then the leaders came to me and said would you be our pastor and I thought good grief this place needs triage. This people need somebody who knows what they're doing. They do not need a rookie fresh out of grad school with absolutely no parish experience. I didn't say that to them because I didn't want to hurt their feelings, but I did say, well, you know what? The first call from seminary is a placement. I have nothing to say about it. It's their, it's their call, not mine. And so I went back to seminary for my interview. I poured out my misgivings because they had sent a letter requesting me. And I said, I just don't think I can, I'm not the man for this job. And, and after I gave my misgivings, he said, well, let me ask you this. Is there any theological reason you wouldn't take that call? And I said, well, when you put it that way, no, I guess there's not. So chalk one up for God once more, overcoming objections. And so for the next 14 years, I found myself <clears throat> as the pastor of this uh, church in New Jersey before I came here. But church workers soon learn that they're never going to win a vocational argument with God and they might as well not even try. Uh, you can't match what God has to say about the matter. But having a spectacular experience with God is not the only thing that can compel people to enter into all kinds of church work. 
Consider the story of Samuel. Several times during the night, he was awakened by a voice that called his name. He figured it was Eli, so he went to the priest's room and said, you rang? And Eli says, no, 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 I didn't call you. You must have eaten something bad. Go back to bed. Well, it happened again and again, and finally the light comes on in Eli's mind. is, hey, listen, next time say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And lo and behold, the mystery was solved. Elijah finds himself standing in front of an empty cave in a huge state of depression. The Lord comes to him, not in a whirlwind, not in an earthquake, but in a still small voice and says, Elijah, what in the world are you doing here? You are not a failure. Get back out there and finish the work I've told you to do. If you pick up a lot of the prophetic books of the Old Testament and read the first page of them, you will find that many of these men came into the ministry because it simply says, and the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah or someone else. A very unspectacular thing happened that led them into the Lord's work. And so if you ask some church workers today, how did you get into this? They will simply say, I don't know. I do not know. I just had this feeling when I was in grade school or maybe high school that this is what I was meant to do. And so they did. Now we don't know how much Peter and his companions heard of Jesus' sermon that day he preached from their boat to the crowds on shore. But we do know this, that after they brought in that huge catch of fish, they didn't interpret that to mean Jesus was telling them, hey, you stick with me and I'll make you the richest fisherman of all because I'll point out to you where all the big catches are to be made. They didn't interpret the big catch of fish that way, nor did they consider their previous night failure and say, you know what? This guy's offering us a new job. We're not much good at this. Let's just take a shot and see what happens. No, these men weren't exactly failures. They owned their own boats. They owned their own nets. They were a partnership. They were doing pretty well. So what happened to make them change vocational courses in such an abrupt fashion? Was it Jesus' hypnotic personality? It's much like that of David Koresh or Jim Jones, who drew cults to themselves by their irresistible personalities? No. It was this, the voice of the one who called the creation into being spoke to them and made a promise. And the promise is, from now on, you will be fishers of men. I wonder how often that big catch of fish and those words came back to them during their ministry. When you consider that, they watched Jesus be booted out of some synagogues taken to the point of a cliff to be thrown over? And did they say to themselves, what have we got ourselves into? When they heard Jesus' mother and his brothers think that he was out of his mind, did they think, boy, did we make a wrong choice? How are we going to get out of this? When they saw Jesus' early followers turn away from him because he was saying some crazy things like, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you or I and the Father are one. Did they think, maybe we ought to make our exit now with these people as well? 
you know they felt exasperated because at one point during their ministry, they sat down and said, Lord, what's to become of us? We've left everything to follow you. Are you going to leave us hanging? What, what's the game plan? And sure enough, after Jesus died, what happened? Peter and company went back to the boats and resumed fishing, thinking, well, it was nice while it lasted, but nothing came of this until they received this call from a man standing on the shore, put your nets in over there. And it was a memory jolt when all those fish came piling into the boat and they recognized they were standing in the presence of the Lord once more. So then, early on Pentecost morning, Luke tells us 125 of Jesus' followers were gathered in an upper room. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Three years, 12 apostles, one leader, and all they can show for themselves is 125 people. This is hardly fish bursting the nets to overflowing. So what did they think was going to happen? Had they been successful? Were they right? What? They didn't realize until later that morning when Peter preached and thousands of people were baptized and came to Christ, when the next week and the next month thousands more joined them, that the problem was not God made a bad promise, but that God's timetable was not our timetable. We expected things were going to happen right away, but no, they happened in God's time. And that's exactly the mindset that God's church workers begin to develop for themselves. Our plans are not God's plans, and we just better follow His rather than to try and construct our own. And so as much as Paul wanted to take the gospel to Asia, Luke tells us the Holy Spirit forbade him from going there. As much as Paul wrote to the Romans and said, I intend to go to Spain and preach the gospel there if I can, we have no archaeological evidence that Paul ever made it to Spain. At one point when they were ushered out of a small town unceremoniously, the disciples were very offended by that and said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire and give these people a Sodom and Gomorrah treatment? And Jesus says, no, that's not in the plan. There came a time in my ministry in New Jersey when I was a little restless and thought, boy, you know, I'd sure like to go back to Colorado. That's where my vicarage was. That's where I met Marlene. And there were a lot of other factors in Colorado that just drew me there. And I prayed about it. And lo and behold, one day in the mail, there was a call document calling me to a church in Littleton, Colorado. And I thought, wow. I was ready to put the for sale sign in the, in the lawn right then and there. And then I opened the letter and read further. And the more I read, the sadder I got because it was clear that this was not a place where I should go because our talents and gifts between me and the head pastor just would not have meshed very well. And it would have been a very, a very difficult ministry that, that would have been my own making. I would have been very unhappy. So I wrote this letter and started out. I remember the words. People will probably think I'm nuts turning down this call to Colorado, but I'm afraid I have to. It would not be a good match and it would not serve the kingdom. So church workers learn to follow the word of, of, of Paul. Don't judge before the time. Uh, our plans are not God's plans. Where he wants to use us, he will. And, and uh, so we may say, here, my Lord, send me. But God will tell you where 
God is going to send you, and it may not be of your own making. Now, as far as God's people are concerned, this is a time always to give thanks to God that he still sends people who are willing to give up everything to follow Jesus in his service. Paul asks a critical question that you and I maybe don't think about a lot, but maybe we should, and the series of questions are these. How can they believe in the one whom, of whom they've not heard? How can they hear unless there's a preacher? And how can the preacher preach unless he is sent? When you think of all the pastors, all the teachers, all the church workers who have served here in defiance, here at St. John's, opportunity to give thanks to God that there have been people who have said, yes, I'm ready to go and serve you. I believe there are people to be caught here in defiance. And through their words and thanks to their words and their acts of loving service, you are among God's people. You are among God's people who know confidently that Christ has forgiven your sins because he died for you on the cross and he was raised by God to show you that he was no imposter, he was the real deal. And it's also time to give thanks to God that you know confidently that you are awaiting being part of the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom which will have no end when Jesus returns in glory. And so along with all those who have ever believed and followed Jesus thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit through those whom God has called into his service, you can say along with them, how beautiful are the feet of those who have left everything behind to come and preach to us the good news. Amen. Peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.